Welcome to the Psychosphere. I'm David Sutcliffe, and my guest today is Chris Arnade. Chris is a freelance writer and photographer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, The Washington Post, The Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal, among many others. He has a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University and worked for 20 years as a trader at an elite Wall Street bank before leaving in 2012 to document addiction and poverty in the Bronx and across the U.S. The result is his 2019 book, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. I highly recommend you purchase and read this book. It is a heartbreaking and beautiful document about a group of Americans who have largely been ignored and forgotten. I've been a fan of his since 2015, so it was a great pleasure to sit down and speak with him. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Arnade. I first discovered you on Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) where you are a strong personality on Twitter. Um, Yeah, I probably should be off Twitter. (laughs) Why do you say that? Um, Because I think it's it's not for the most nuanced views. And I think I'm a little bit – Twitter um, gets me angry because the people on Twitter are not necessarily representative of of, – the broader public. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. But I, I find that you have a pretty good way of handling it. Maybe that's not your own perception from the outside looking in. You seem to be, I, you never come across of, as aggressive or angry, uh, sometimes a little annoyed or frustrated, disappointed maybe. But um, I don't know, I, I really enjoy your perspective and your, your presence. Well, thank Twitter. you. Yeah. So I, I came across uh, 2015, I think, during – I read one of your posts on Medium and where you first started talking about this uh, – what was going on with Trump and, and trying to put it into some kind of socioeconomic context. And uh, I found that really uh, comforting to read because I thought that the conversation that was being had was absurd to me right. and disappointing. Uh, because something was clearly going on, and the the my people, which was the left, I'm you know from I'm originally from Canada and very liberal, went to Hollywood, and all my friends were liberal, were just denouncing all these people who were supporting Trump as just racist, backward, ugly, and I I found it distasteful, and uh, and so reading that first blog post of yours, it just gave it a perspective and it humanized it in a way that was. Uh, I just was immediately interested in your point of view. How's that been for you, this new identity as somebody who's was a Wall Street <laughs> guy and now you are a I don't know, a photographer, journalist, thinker? Yeah, um it's been part of the problem is focusing get the focus off of me and onto the people I write about. Uh-huh. Cuz I mean I I look, I appreciate that the reason I have a platform is because of my story. If I had been doing this and I hadn't been a banker, I don't think as many people would be interested. So there is this combination of using, uh, I will say a gimmick almost to get people, you know, to, and the media clear media clearly cares about that angle. Um, and so I've accepted it, even though I'd rather not the focus be on me. And I think where I'm weakest is explaining to people. And, and when I was doing my book promotion, 
um, I'm not a big fan of promotion to begin with, but you know, I want people to read the book. And so um, it was hard to navigate that. You know, I, the question I get answered all the time and the very first question is explain why you did it. And it's not something I have a good answer for. Certainly not a, not a, not a one, you know, 15 second sound bite. And that's hurt me, I think, in some of the promotions, because uh, even though I know it's coming, I still can't really answer it fully because uh, there, I don't really like the focus on me because I prefer it to be about the people I document, but also because I don't really know if there's a, there's a 15 second answer to that question about why I did this. Um, that really, you know, that satisfies people and, <laughs> and satisfies me because I'm not really sure why I did it, you know, to be honest. Yeah. Well, that is, the, that is the most interesting. Well, it's an interesting question to, to. Right. And, and so, yeah. And so I, I understand why people ask it and I'm, I'm not angry when they ask it. And, but, but even then I still don't really have a great answer for it. Um, and, um, you know, some of it's the fact that, you know, some of us, uh, you know, the, the general stock answer is I was just tired of what I was doing. I think given your life story, you understand that. Um, you you wake up at some point for me it wasn't i i didn't have that you know that epiphany that oh this is so wrong it was just a slow gradual erosion of the ground beneath my feet and at some point times that you know you look down you go shit there's not much ground underneath my feet um and you you know it was harder for me because i have a family that yeah you know, I, I don't know if you remember the book or the movie um mosquito coast Paul throw it's about a guy who goes on a personal journey mm -hmm. ends up dragging his family into hell right you know it's great for me to go on my personal journey but it's not great for me to drag my family through hell so I was you know I had a very comfortable job um I had you know we had a luxurious apartment in the nicest neighborhood in Brooklyn um my kids went to good schools um and you know with minimal amount of work I could make good money and and provide them with everything they wanted, which was more than I wanted. And at some point to simply say, I'm going to stop doing that, you know, that's unfair to them, perhaps, <laughs> you know, that's not necessarily what, what I, you know, so it was harder in that sense. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my feet dragging about why it took so long to get here for me was obligations to my family. But, um, you know, Eventually, I, I worked on setting it up so that um, I could both – I had enough money if we moved here upstate um, after my oldest daughter went through high school, finished her high school, that we, we could – you know I could give them the lifestyle they expected and wanted and also at the same time do this project and what I wanted to do. How did your family take it? I mean, particularly your, your wife. I'm curious about that. When you started these long walks and started to photograph and then dedicate more of your life to it, what was, what was her reaction? You know, I think for people who, like, we got married at the age of 23. So she's known me for a long time. And for people who know, know who've known me since college, which is where she met me, me being a banker was the more strange behavior. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you know, I, I didn't, um, I came out of particle physics. I was a PhD in particle physics and then I became a banker. And if you asked me a year before I became a banker, what a bank was, I don't think I could have told you, hmm. um, you know, I mean, beyond, or what a bond was from different from a stock. So that was kind of the stranger behavior. And so 
part of the missing of the story that I haven't really told in my book is because I didn't make it about me is um, I was always a bit of an oddity on Wall Street. Um, um, so I was taking those long walks when I was still working, you know, when I was the big, when I was the most bankery type of person ever, I was still, you know, the, the very first day I got to New York City, I mean, I think it was like August 3rd, 1993. Um, I can't believe I remember that. Um, I, um, I didn't know anything about New York City, so I took this, the A train all the way up to the Cloisters, which is where the Broadway ends. Um, and I walked 22 miles home to Brooklyn Heights, my neighborhood. So I'd always, you know, and when the kids were in diapers, I would bundle them up into the into on put them on the subway and then go to the end of the subway and walk with them so i was always doing those walks um it just became something different as my career advanced and the kids got older and i had and my job got quote easier so i had more free time to, to carry my camera around and actually turn those walks into you know more about learning and less about just seeing was it new york city that you started to walk or had you been a walker yeah. your entire life um i mean I've always walked those walks, um, but New York City gave me the the best platform to do it because it's such a great walking city. I mean, I, I, I went to I went to university at John in Johns Hopkins, um, so I walk there too. Um, it just has less <laughs> less options for walking, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I really do believe that the way to see a city is to walk it. Um, and so, um, or public transportation, those are the two. So one of the things I didn't write about in my book is whenever I went to a place, I would try to use the public transportation, um, you know, and so even though I did drive a lot of places. So for instance, um, when I was in LA, um, I stayed in, um, if your listeners know LA, I stayed in, I stayed in parts of LA that few people stayed in. I stayed in Downey, um, and Pico Rivera. Um, and, um, I try to take buses everywhere. Um, and that's tough. You know, yeah. you, learn, you learn a lot when you take a bus. I mean, one of the things, one of the just small details, one of the few things you learn very quickly is, and someone else wrote about this and it was a really interesting piece, um, shade bus stops and poor neighbors don't have shade. And so you spend a lot of time sweating and getting burned, you know, and you, you'll have a small tree that five people are, are are hovered around because it's the only shade provided um, in these in these poorer neighborhoods. Um, but you know, you just see another side of LA that that I don't think a lot of people see is when if, when you use the um, b- bus system. Um, but it, it, LA is not a good walking town. It's probably the worst no. walking town. I've had, you know, I love Downey and I love Pico Rivera, and uh, but uh, hell if I'm going to walk in that town. You know, it's just, it's just, it's absolute misery to try to walk. Um, if you're open to it, I'd, I'd love to, I mean, I don't know, deconstruct a little bit about um, why, why you did choose this path emotionally, psychologically. I wonder, cause you, you know, reading your book, you were, you felt like an outsider when you were growing up a little bit. Um, then you get to wall street, you feel like an outsider and I wonder if there was something in going into these neighborhoods, these are outsiders in some way. Are you searching for something inside yourself? Is there something that wants to be resolved inside you in this? There's endeavor? a there's a term I think it's coined. My father was my father. I grew up odd, and another thing I didn't fully mention in my book was my father was um, the way we 
we traveled all the time as children. Um, I come from a large family, um, and my dad was a professor. And we were the outsiders in our town because he was probably the only professor in town. It's a small southern town. Um, but we would spend a year living in Nigeria every third year we'd go do something crazy and the trips we would take were kind of like the trips i would take we were clear you know as somebody said about my father which is true of me i'm you're, he was happiest when he was in a place he shouldn't have been so wherever the wherever the worst things were going on in the world that's where we'd go um so if there was you know i remember when there was the angola for people who of my age remember angola there was a there was a civil war in angola so that we we went to the, the then called the Southwest Africa. Now it's called Namibia. We went to the Namibia Angola border to, 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 you know, for him to learn about the resistance movement. Um, so that kind of, there's a term for people who grew up kind of diplomats, kids or missionary kids, which is called, I think, third culture kids, people who are never fully immersed in their culture. Yeah, any any one culture, and so are kind of observers, people who kind of sit on the fringes and watch stuff. So that's always kind of been the way I've, you know, I'm very experimental. I believe I'm very experiential. I will always try something new to learn about it um, and be the observer. You know, I grew up, my dad was Jewish, my mother was Baptist, but I grew up Catholic, so I was never any of the three. Um, and so you always become kind of someone who's not fully immersed in one culture. And that makes you somebody, I, I tend to find those people tend to be people who tend to be anthropologists or people who, who, who document and watch and kind of take out and observe. And, um, you know, at a very selfish level, the walks were just, you know, for me, it was a very great way to learn. You know, um, it, it was the ability to travel. When you go to New York City, it's basically 70 different neighborhoods stitched together by a subway system. Um, and so I used to say when I got there, I could just take a token and go to any different country. Um, you know, there was a, there was a period of my life when I tried to go to, um, I went through the alphabet of all the different, um, countries and I tried to go to a bar or a restaurant of every country in New York city, starting with Albania and ending with, you know, Zaire. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a bit of a check, there's a bit of the collector thing there, but there's also the bit of the observer, which is to kind of you know, learn. And at a personal level, that makes me happy. You know, I mean, at a very, very personal level, you know, there was this really absurd period of my life, maybe two years when I was doing this project and had, had been, ended up focusing on the Bronx, this one particular neighborhood in the Bronx, Hunts Point, mm -hmm. where I had started realizing this was a project and I started spending time with a, with a street family of homeless addicts. Um, you know, crawling under bridges with them, going into crack houses, taking pictures, writing their stories, um, taking them to detox, visiting them in Rikers jail, taking them, you know, to, to Lincoln Memorial Hospital, just getting immersed where I was still working on Wall Street, doing this on the weekends and on, you know, I would take a Thursday, a Friday off and do three-day weekends of this, or I'd go up on a Tuesday night. Um, and so it was just absurd. I was, you know, in crack houses on the weekends and on a trading floor on the weekday and it just couldn't it just couldn't go on um just the fatigue was too much and the, the the juxtaposition was just too great and i had to choose one and i chose the one where i was happiest so at a very personal selfish level it's where i was happiest you know i, I preferred doing this what what about it made you happy 
Um, the people I enjoy, you know, I, and I get, you know, there was, I think at a, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to romanticize the poor because there's a lot of bad people who are poor. I mean, it's just like yeah. not this, this, these beautiful angels. I'm not there to save them. I'm there to hang out with them. And it, what it was, was it was a lack of pretense. You know, it's just like, you didn't have to watch your language. You didn't, you know, there wasn't the arrogance. Um, it was just, you know, to put it in mathematical terms, but when I, when I did physics, I liked, um, I like cosmology. I study the big questions, the boundaries. Think you know, when you push when you push things to the really edge. What you, you I think you learn about the core about ourselves. So to to learn about how matter is made, we 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 push things to the extremes and then slam them together and see the explosion. Uh, I kind of say that that's what you that's like when you're hanging out with, with with homeless addicts. It's life pushed to the extreme, right? And what's exposed is the interior, the core, you know, the quarks of life, as they call it. Um, you know, the three, the three or four lessons that drive us all that are fundamental, and you see that when you're pushed to the edge, when you're at Wall Street, surrounded by bankers, you, those things, those kind of driving necessities of life, those driving things that make us human are all clouded and, you know, surrounded by luxury. And, and, and so it's harder to peel back the onion and see truths. Um, and so, you know, I was learning more at a fundamental level, but also I was around people who were less arrogant. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and I just, you also didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to watch your language. <laughs> they're, just, they're, they're, I mean, they're funny as fuck, <laughs> you know, it was just, it was, and so, there was, it was just, um, at a selfish level, I was learning a lot. And at a selfless level, it was just kind of, um, it, it was just being around people who I felt were, I mean, for a lack of a better word, more real. Do you think about it in, in terms of your own like spiritual journey? Like take, cause you're taking yourself to the edge in, in some way, putting yourself in, in some extreme circumstances, associating with people who are living in a, a certain kind of way, very close to poverty and addiction, and you're surrounding yourself with that. And, and being in that environment has a has an impact on you. And it, it did. These people became your friends. And I, I know in the book, at one point, you said you struggled with your own addiction issues. And but, but just being around that level of uh, sadness and pain and trauma must have had a, an impact on you. Yeah, I mean, it, it wears you down, um, and um, you know, I don't want to use it as an excuse for why I drank so much because that's an excuse. Um, but you know, the the bigger issue for me at a personal level and why I had to stop at some level was um, you just lose sense of perception. Of, of I mean, you don't want to be. I don't want to be that person who always when anybody has a problem says, well, what about the third world? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and, and that's what I was becoming, which was when my family was, you know, oh, my daughter is struggling, you know, in math, you know, I don't want to be the person who's like kind of rolls my eyes and say, well, what about, you know, you're lucky you have, lucky you have this house. Um, you know, I don't want to be that person who's always um, not de- denying people their happiness because someone else is less fortunate than them. Um, and so that lack that perspective kind of drove me to a point where I think I was becoming irritating. Um, but it was also just, I just wrote a book review of another book that's similar to my book called Tightrope, um, by, by a New York Times op-ed writer. And what I also did want to be is become someone who has a savior complex. And that's yeah. what that book is, is where to truly respect somebody as an individual, you let them be, 
you know, you don't spend your life pestering them saying, hey, you need to get clean. Hey, you need to do this. Hey, you need to do this. You, you allow them the dignity to, do, to, to recognize that they're, they have agency and they can do what they want to do. Um, and I found myself becoming more and more um, trying to save people, which is just not the right thing to do. And, it, you know, and then after that, it became just, it also became just depressing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, you, you know, and so I had to get out for my own personal, um, 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 for my own personal um, sanity. But, you know, in terms of what changed me is, again, I will say that I'm glad I, you know, I'm very glad I did the six-year project. I learned more, or seven-year, I learned more during this project than I did getting a PhD in physics. And I learned more than my 20 years on Wall Street. Um, and uh, I'm so, I'm very glad I did it. But at the same time, this completely changed me. And it's not necessarily fair, again, to my lifetime friends who, you know, I have less, at a personal level, I have less tolerance for things that other people enjoy. Um, and that's not fair because I shouldn't deny, you know, if my, if, if somebody wants to have a nice wedding, you know, I, they should have a nice wedding. It shouldn't be for me to say, Oh Jesus, this, you know, I was just, you know, you should have seen what happens over there. <laughs> you know, you, you allow people to have their own, their own happiness. Um, and at a personal level, um, what the biggest change I would say for me is just, is a recognition of faith as a person from science. And I, I mean faith in a very broad term. I don't mean just in the Quran or else the Bible. I mean in, you know, new age stuff. I mean mm -hmm. in spirituality. However anybody finds, we, we have a very, we, the front, the, the educated class, the kind of people who control stuff. I call them the front row in my book. We have a very de narrow definition of what is approved and that is a very secular rationalist approach. Yeah. Um, and if you are somebody who, you know, who has a, a differing form of how you find spirituality, um, you know, if, if you, if you have energy rocks or if you have mm -hmm. snakes or if you, you know, have snakes or speak in tongues, all these are looked at as kind of undignified. And, and whereas, you know, for me, what I saw was during the seven years is those are extraordinarily powerful, not just as ways to, to deal with the life, but as ways, you know, not just as a opiate of the masses, which is, which is a really demeaning way to look at religion, um, yeah. but as a way or faith of spirituality, but as a way to, as a, as a valid truth, you know, if somebody can find um, meaning through meditation or through snake handling, go for it, man. <laughs> you know, that, that's as much, that's to me, you know, and that's, that's been the biggest change is recognizing that and understanding why people will do something um, along those lines that I wouldn't necessarily have done. Yeah, I always think that people are going to worship something. It's going to be money. It's going to be your career, sex, or some kind of spirituality, some kind of God. And um, I, I recently started, not recently, but three, four years ago, started working with a Lakota man just because I was fascinated with the the songs. And he introduced me into their religious, I mean, they would they don't call it a religion, but their, their belief system. And I really started to understand as I went to Sweat Lodge and went to South Dakota and 
saw the the Sundance and did some vision quests, like the power of belief and the power of faith and how, how what it adds to your life. And so, yeah, I, I resonate with that idea that the, the, the uh, religion as the opiate for the masses feels very, it feels very condescending and it creates a lot of uh, separation, which, you know, again, is one of the things that I really resonate about your message is just, and, and I think why, not that we need to bring it back to Trump, but again, why we got Trump, at least on one level, was just this disconnection from this part of the country, uh, condescension, and that uh, of uh, you know the back row America, just a, a really a lack of recognition, a lack of compassion, a lack of understanding, and an unwillingness to look at it. Right. It was very, you know, as you as you said at the very beginning, um, what really frustrated me, and how I kind of got into writing this book, and you know, this was this project which started in twelve two thousand ten. Uh, from me walking into neighborhoods with my camera ended up being, you know, four years in the Bronx with homeless addicts. Um, then I eventually went on the road when the Bronx got to be too much personally, but also going back to the earlier thing, intellectually, I wanted to see what I learned. Those quirks of life that I discovered in the Bronx were translationally invariant. Were they also true in, um, you know, Milwaukee, were they yeah. also true in, um, in El Paso? And so I got in my car and did that. And, um, you know, the, 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 the thing that it just happened to overlap with the election. And I wasn't, you know, it's, it's fascinating that to many people I'm known as a person and how you saw me as somebody who, who was quote, explaining Trump voters, because I, part of the reason I was going to these white working class neighborhoods is because I was it was pointed out that my, if I was going to focus on poverty, it was unfair to focus on only minorities, um, you know, because although minorities are disproportionately um, represented as poor, they're not the only poor. Yeah. And so I didn't, so I ended up intentionally going to white working class neighborhoods because I was going to do this project on poverty. And I wanted to see if what I learned in Hunts Point, a minority neighborhood was true in West Virginia, a non-minority neighborhood. And it's, it, it took place right against the election. And so I, I had no interest in writing about politics, but what's so frustrating as we spoke about earlier is part of the way I kept notes and part of the way I kept, you know, it was on Twitter. I would kind of tweet my observations as ways to think about my thoughts mm -hmm. um, to, to, to see if they, you know, I would type up my notes at night, but then I would tweet them also to see, to get feedback, you know, to see if like, you know, am I completely fucking off the charts here? Like, you know, here I am by myself writing these notes up in my, that, you know, and when I was on Twitter, again, it was that disconnect of here I was seeing this thing. And I, I as a scientist, I really thought, people would say, oh, this is really interesting. You know, you're, what you're seeing is, what I'm seeing is, is that there's this great frustration. There's this educational divide in the country that um, is often as big as a racial divide. And that, that the, 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 the poor, the un, undereducated, as you were, no matter what race, were, equal, were equally frustrated. And how that frustration got, 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 got rendered was a function of race. If you were poor and white, you could vote for Trump. And if you were poor and black, you just didn't vote. In both cases, you were, you're saying, I'm frustrated with the status quo. And I thought people would go, yeah, that's really interesting, you know. And on Twitter, I was like, I was called a racist. I was called an asshole. And I'm like, I was like, what? I, you know, that wasn't, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to warn you that unless something changes, Trump's going to win. 
and you're telling me that I support Trump and I don't support Trump. I'm just warning you he's going to win. And what was really disappointing to me, because as, as someone who comes from the left, was <clears throat> to see people with you know very um, privileged backgrounds um, on the left who had large platforms mocking Trump voters as a group um, and, and walking, mocking the white working class as a group when they themselves have rightfully um, pushed back when the right mocks minority communities. Yeah. When the right says, you know, if you if you if you look at the ag- aggregate behavior of a group and assign it a quality that's subhuman, then you're doing it wrong. That's not yeah. the left. That's you know the right does that to minority communities. They look at them. They say they're deviant. Um, you know, they're lazy. Um, uh, they're they're more violent, and all these awful awful accusations that the left pushes back against rightfully, correctly, and when. Here, you know, all of a sudden here now the shoe's on the other foot and the left is – and some people, not all, but a lot of people, it was you know a few very privileged um, – were, do, were doing that about Trump voters. And I was like, well, maybe, maybe <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Um, but maybe there is – it's kind of the canary in the coal mine. Maybe what you're seeing here is that people are just really tired of being mocked and tired of being you know, condescended to and t- t- tired of being treated like subhumans, you know. You know, I remember once when I was in some trailer park in West Virginia with uh, a family of addicts. Uh, it was a family, and I remember um, I forgot where why I why I asked them the question or the context of the question. But there was this theme going around that you know the white working class has has white privilege, right? And I remember asking this guy who you know was living in a trailer that barely had electricity. Um, and, you know, I had given him 20 bucks to, to, to supposedly take, cause he needed to get to his rehab clinic, but I knew I was going to go to drugs. You know, I can just don't lie to me, but I'll do it anyways. Cause you know, you spent, I spent the day with you and you've been good to me. Um, I remember him. I just asked him about something about, you know, do you feel like you have privilege here? <laughs> he's like, he's like, he just look around you. <laughs> Fucking, are you serious? <laughs> so, Yes, the white working class has privilege relative to the black working class, but that's not who's telling them they have privilege. Who's telling them they have privilege is a Harvard law professor, <laughs> you know, and and if people can't see that, it's just, you know, telling telling a group that they have privilege when you yourself have more privilege is not it's not going to be the way to win them over to your views. Yeah, no, exactly. Not only is is putting the all the Trump voters into one category and pathologizing them and calling them racist it, it it's it's immoral it's unethical it's also not a good strategy to get them to vote for you i mean that's that's the thing that was most confusing to me it's like you're going to alienate these people they're never going to vote for you like you're not going to win well there's two things i say about that one is i i jokingly say the the left comes into these neighborhoods and says you know your job is obsolete. Your lifestyle is icky. You should probably move. Now vote for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but the other thing I would say is, you know, what, what's, so, what's so frustrating about it is um, in, in addiction, there's this term I, I, ta- I call, I call owning, owning the addiction. There comes a point when addicts are so sick of being mocked or so tired yeah. of being mocked, you, you know, to use aggressive language, you know, because I spend a lot of time with, with 
with prostitutes who are, you know, if, if often, unfortunately, if you're a, if you're, if you're a poor addict and you're a woman, you're going to prostitute to make money. Yeah. Um, and many men do that as well. Um, and they do sex work because that's the easiest way to get money. And I remember one of them saying, um, you know, eventually they get sick of being, you're a dirty hoe, right? Um, you're a dirty, lazy hoe. Eventually they own it. They're like, yo, I'm a, I'm a, right. that's it. You know, they're yeah. proud of it. You know, I own the stigma. Like I'm a deplorable. Yes. And so that's what ended up happening with Trump people. Eventually they started, own, enough of them started owning the stigma. You're going to call me a racist no matter what I do. Fine. Then might as well just be a racist, <laughs> you know, and to, to, to basically make fun of you. And it becomes this really ugly cycle, uh, that downward spiral, which, you know, I don't, is, is there a lot of racism amongst the white working class? Yes, it's bad. Yeah. Um, but is it, is it a binary thing that can never be changed? No, it ebbs and flows. Racism is a, is you know is is a result of is a result of many things, and it yeah, racism just also pop into existence. There, there's a condition that causes it, and you know I wrote about this in my book, or I tried to illustrate this in my book when I talked about the the, the Somali community in Lewiston, Maine. Now you know how the conditions were created that were ripe for a pushback against their existence and how that played out in a very ugly way. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if you, if you're going to, if your goal is to quote, diminish racism, then, you know, I often say is we've created the perfect environment for the, if you produce the imperfect environment for the, for a conducive environment for the production of racism, uh, and it, that, that's bad. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. no, uh, nobody's defending, you know, it's, you're hard plus to find anything other than 2% of the population who defends racism. Yeah. People want it to get, yeah. there's nobody out there who, who's, you know, actively supporting it. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, it was just this, but it, for me, you know, just where we started the conversation for me, you know, going back to Twitter, it was really frustrating because I had really thought that, and, you know, and then when Trump won at a, at a selfish level, I mean, the, the the personal silver lining was like, well, at least people will now take what I say more seriously because I was warning about this. And of course not. <laughs> like, now, they doubled no. down. <laughs> you know, now I would now also and I was responsible for Trump. And it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, so and I feel kind of like it was the same way with um you know, you just try to warn people like you're walking into, you're just, you're just making the situation worse here. Um, you know, stop talking down to the working class, uh, white blacks up, stop treating them like kids who need to be talked down to and reformed, you know, take their, take, take their anger seriously. Um, and, and, and understand that unless something changes, that anger is going to get worse. And that's not a good thing. No one, I don't want the working class to be angry. I again, I don't want to romanticize them. They got some really bad fucking tendencies and flaws. So, you know. In your book, you, you're, you're pretty fair with their motives. You know, this, this idea that the left actually has good intentions. But I, I, I wonder if that's true. I mean, I think consciously they say they do, but it, like it feels to me what I see is like, I have power, I have money, I have status, and I want to hold on to it. And that 
you know, we talk about this idea of virtue signaling, that a lot of the politics are really about um, holding on to their social status, saying the right things. It becomes their own religion, really. I mean, I completely agree with that part. Um, it, it, see, but that's almost why I don't think I mean, I again. So, for instance, let's talk about let's let's frame in the religious framework. If if a missionary goes into, you know, a Catholic missionary goes into India, right, or goes into Taipei, yeah, they can cause a lot of damage. Yeah, but they have good intentions. I mean, again, they really think they're coming from, and that's actually can be a worse case, right? Because I often say, for instance, so. The libertarians in Wall Street I used to work with, who will at least they're honest when they, you know, I, I, I don't like their policies. I don't like the way, that, you know, there's some things I like them about, but they're kind of like, oh, the poor deserve what they got. Uh-huh. At least they're honest about their intentions. Yeah. I, can argue, yeah. I can argue with them. I can generally just say, well, no, that's your point of view. It's when somebody actually thinks they're helping and they're doing more damage. So it's like the Kristoff book that I just reviewed, this tightrope. They only they think that the way to help the poor is by them becoming the poor. The poor need to do, need to become need to become op-ed writers in New York Times. They need to live. They need to get reformed, get education, and do exactly what you know Nick, Nick Kristoff, the, the op-ed writer, did. You know he he's coming from a good place. I don't doubt that. He really cares about the poverty that he sees. But his solution, you have to become like me. You know, to me yeah. is is a form of religious saving. It's like it's, yeah. it's you know it's it's you, it's not it's denying them the agency to to say just maybe just maybe they don't want to be like you, maybe they don't want to live in New York City, maybe they want to don't want to uproot their family, maybe they don't want to you know go go to five different you know get get into the resume arms race to get credentials to be and give up their faith to be accepted in you, into your new religion you know your your secular your secular religion that demands you 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 believe all these things the problem is is uh, i will never argue nick with nick Kristoff because he a, he won't he won't he won't bother to argue with me but there's no convincing him of this like i mean he he he's he's so deep he so fully believes that his way of living is the the, the sacred way you know, the religious way that, and again, I don't doubt that he really does believe he is helping these people. And so consequently, I think he can do more damage often, you know, beware of somebody with good intentions, you know, (laughs) because, you know, it's, it's like, ah, ah. Um, so I'm not as cynical as you are. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't necessarily think it's, you know, I, I think, I think subconsciously, uh-huh. maybe not explicitly, implicitly, look, their lifestyle is threatened by this. Yeah. You know? So, so yeah, they're, they're defending something. And so it's harder to get to the next intellectual loophole. Yeah. But, but, you know, they can, again, they can completely say, how can I possibly be racist when I support the following five policies, even though I live in a segregated neighborhood, you know, where the only where the only minorities here have PhDs, <laughs> like me, you know, and I remember when I was, um, you know, in my neighborhood, my Brooklyn Heights neighborhood is a perfect example of that. I don't know if you know New York City. A little bit. Um, Brooklyn Heights is a 
a very wealthy neighborhood. It's also very liberal, and it's 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 a lot of um, a lot of artists live there. Um, I think the most famous person from your world is the guy from um, uh, was this Paul Giamatti? Is that his name? The uh-huh. actor? Yeah. Like he, he his kids used to go to school with my kids, that sort of thing. Um, very re- leftist, but in in very quote diverse. You know, there's but but. But everybody is, you know, has a PhD basically, <laughs> or, 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 and so there's also no buses allowed in my neighborhood. So part of the reason is, you know, because it's a historic district quote, but also it means that if I found this out when I broke my ankle, like there's no buses here. Like, you know, I have to walk eight blocks. They don't want, they set the neighborhood up. So it's very hard for the poor. That is where we lost connection, and we picked up the conversation a few days later. I was going to ask you about you what what was you were going to do next a uh, project on global slums. So that's going to require uh, more traveling, obviously, right. all over the world. The same the same approach. You're you're going um, to yeah. I mean, this time I'm going to be a little bit more um, a little more methodical about it. Um, I kind of narrowed it down to like. Uh, I think I got a list of eight places, um, two on each continent. And what I what I'll do is I'll visit each one um, for about a month, and then go back for four months. Okay. To do it, to do it right. properly, right? Um, four after months I, after I narrow it down to maybe six places or five places. But I, I did the first month in August. I went to Jakarta and spent all of um, that month. Um, and they're, they're, they're in, in, in Indonesia, they're called Kampongs, K-A-M-P-U-N-G. So I went to the Kampongs and just hung out for a month. And that's how I kind of work. I just kind of hang out. I didn't bring my camera. I just walked around and just kind of scoped out and got a sense of what it was and why it worked and why it didn't work. And then the goal was, you know, once I narrowed it down to two or three neighborhoods um, to maybe go back and spend three months there with somebody you know, a local who can help me translate. So, um, but um, like, so I was going to go to India um, uh, this summer, but I can't do that. Um, It doesn't look like, well, I don't think we're going to be traveling anytime soon. Is your intention to, with all of this, this, these projects to, I mean, what is your intention with these projects? Um, You know, as we kind of spoke last time, it's a little bit of um, personal, um, intellectual curiosity. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's kind of like what I did with the book on dignity. The thing about the global slums is, I mean, 1 billion people live in these towns and no one sees them. I mean, other than the people who live there, I don't, you know, when I was in Jakarta, no tourists, a lot of tourists go to Indonesia, they go to Bali, they don't go to Jakarta. And if they go to Jakarta, they get the hell out of there real quickly. Um, they certainly don't go to the neighborhoods I went to. Um, and, you know, 10 million people in Jakarta live like that. Yeah. 5 million people. They're big. <laughs> you know, they're they're a, a big part of the of the way our, you know, our world operates. And it's always kind of interested me that something can be so big and so inter- integral, and yet we don't really talk about it much. And if we talk about it, it's usually by, you know, by people like me who go there and then generally stay only two days and say bad things about it. Yeah, that's the impression I got. It's like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like, I want to show you this. Like, you need to see this. We need to look at this. And I even noticed 
and I, you know, I'm a fan of yours. I'm a fan of your work. When I went to your Flickr, Flickr account and saw all the pictures of the faces of addiction, there was a part of me, it's like, I don't want to look at this. I don't want to see this. Right. And there's stuff I, I took off that you believe me, you don't want to see because yeah, it's, I'm a little, sure. it's a little more shocking. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, in the perfect world, someone from Jakarta, from the Kampongs, would tell their own story and we'd listen to it, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I'll try to be a, a, a middleman in some senses of helping them, you know. And then there's the, you know, there's the part of me that I, I, I like it. I enjoy it. Yeah. I, I literally enjoyed spending a month in what are, you know, Indonesian slums. I mean, like I... I got a lot of intellectual fulfillment out of that. I enjoyed talking to the people. Um, you know, I learned a lot. To, to, to be to be cliched, you only do live once, and so you might yeah. as well experience as so many things as possible. Um, but again, you know, it reminded me, I don't know if this took place um, since we last spoke, but, um, you know, one of the things that we, the skate park in LA got closed. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, I, I tweeted about it. Yes, and then they filled it in with dirt, and then the, the motorcyclists came and played in it. <laughs> and one of the things that it reminded me of is I what I love about these neighborhoods is it it reminds you how um, how uh, smart people are. Yeah. How how people you know how you put in a dumb rule and people get around it and. You know, one of the things I like about being in, in the slums or I like about being in, in Hunts Point is I'm reminded how, how much ingenuity there is in humans, that they'll take things that, you know, <laughs> I mean, part of me after spent enough time in the Bronx, like the minute you, they, they said they, turned, they, put, they put dirt in there, I'm like, man, that, the dirt bikers are going to come. <laughs> totally. And I'm glad they did, man. It's me like, too. You know, um, so, but it's the, like, it's like, again, and when you see, when you go in these places, you, you learn a lot about human creativity and you learn a lot about, um, ingenuity. I mean, that's the, that's the positive side. The negative side is people have to improvise, right? Like they're forced to improvise because they're, they're usually in a, re, in a position of being given the scraps. Um, one of the things that brought me to Hunts Point initially, um, that I, I don't think I mentioned was the pigeon keepers. I don't know if you that was my first photo essay was these guys who keep pigeons on, and it's almost all guys. I think there's two women who do it, but they keep pigeons on their roof. And um, I noticed at first when I was in Brooklyn, you see these swirls of beautiful pigeons and they're choreographed. You just look at them initially. And then I remember looking up once and trying to figure out what they were. I had no idea that they were pigeon keepers. Um, and um, I saw this flag, you know, white flag on a pole being like basically on a bamboo pole, like six stories up, you know, clearly directing the pigeons. Wow. And so I just walked into the building. It was an abandoned building. I walked up and there was a, there was a rickety ladder up into the roof and I stuck my head up there. <laughs> Some Puerto Rican guys are like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> like well, you, you're keeping pigeons you're like yeah and they showed me and so i got into this little world of pigeon keepers um which is all poor um uh mostly puerto ricans and dominicans in the bronx and brooklyn who um find an abandoned building and put coops up there and then have a thousand pigeons amazing um, they auction them they go to weekly auctions where they buy pigeons 
Um, it's not pigeon racing. It's just they just keep them and they fly them. And so, you know, it's again, it's an example of, for me, when I went to Hunts Point, because in Hunts Point, there's a lot of pigeon keepers. Um, and it was another example of kind of the improv improvisation. For me, it's an art. I, I see pigeon keeping as an art form. Right. It's not a sport because there's really no, you don't race them. You just kind of, you know, sometimes you play games with other people. You try to steal their pigeons by getting your them to come into your flock. If you see someone else, others' pigeons up, you put your pigeons up. And if you think your pigeons are better, the other, some of theirs will join yours. And then you can steal some of their pigeons. You know, so there's some competition there, but it's it's mostly good good natured. One of the things that struck out to me about your your photography, and 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 I, I wonder if if this is the thing that you'll ultimately be most remembered for. Like I, I think you're an exceptional photographer, and maybe that gets lost because of all the social political conversations around your work. Um, and I know you've been criticized by other photojournalists for your technique, yes. I guess. I, I, I tried to read and understand the criticism. I didn't really get it. I got, I got, I got mugged by the elites. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know. It, it was a completely, completely cheap shot. But anyways, so what, anyways, go ahead. Well, that there's, I mean, what I noticed is that, so, and I said earlier, sometimes with your photo, your photography, it's like, there's a part of me that doesn't want to look at it. And then there's another part and part, I guess, part of the criticism is, you know, you're exploiting and, and you're make, making, turning something artistic and beautiful into something, something that's poverty and maybe it's ugly. But I find with your photography is you don't shy away from the ugliness. And maybe that's not the right word to use, but the, the, the depravity. The graphicness. <laughs> yeah, the graphicness. Thank you. That uh, is there, but there's, also in it um an appreciation a beauty and an admiration of the human spirit which is what i feel when you're talking about these guys with the pigeons yeah well thank you i mean one of the things that yeah i, I tend to i'm glad i wrote the book to stand alone without the photographs but i am very you know i am proud of my photography and it's what kind of drew me into this whole project because um when I was going on these walks that we spoke about, um, I um, once I brought my camera, everything changed. Right. Um, because then it became people started opening up to me even more. When you know, when I would take their picture, they would want to talk. People would ask, you know, people would ask me like, "How how do you get people take your picture?" It's the opposite. I have to stop people from yeah. wanting me to take their picture. It's like. <laughs> you know, so that's why the whole thing about the the idea that I'm exploiting people when I, you know, people I spent with four years with, who clearly gave me the 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 um, all photography is exploitive and all journalism, right? Yeah, it's yeah. just and so I think I'm I'm willing to have that conversation with the people who made the accusations, but they weren't they weren't going to have that conversation. They're just going to say they didn't like my political message, so they attacked me for something else. But um, the thing, the thing I always have trouble with is getting people to, you know, it's like after a while, you're like, no, I can't take any more pictures. Man. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I've, I've taken a thousand pictures of your pigeons or <laughs> of, of whatever, but you know, you got to give me a break. Um, so yeah, people want their pictures taken and, and, um, and it, what's interesting is how um, once they start asking their pictures to be taken, that was, you know, a way for people to open up to me. Yeah. So wherever I went, I always had my camera. And that was always a way 
that's pretty much all I carry is my camera. And that was a way for people to start a conversation. I rarely start conversations. Um, you know, the fact that I'm a white guy often in a place where white guys are not rare, not, especially when I'm with camera, people come to me. Mm -hmm. And so what I'll do is I'll sit in the McDonald's and I usually sit, if I'm in a town where I'm there for, I'm writing a story about the town, I'll stay there for like two weeks and I'll just literally go to the same two McDonald's every night, you know, one or two McDonald's and just sit there and type up my notes. And eventually people come to me. Right. And, you know, I know that they want to talk because I didn't start the process, you know? Um, and so that's an important for me to know that, you know, they're, they're willing, they know what's in it. They know if there's a guy right. for them to start the conversation instead of me starting it. Yeah. You have, I would imagine that you have, you have to work hard at earning their trust. Right. And, but the, um, the photograph, you know, the thing about photography, the problem with photography for me though, is I don't, there's a lot of people who just think the photographs just stand alone. I don't believe that. I think that photos are, are, are very powerful, um, you know, but I don't think, I think unaccompanied by context, right. they can lose a lot of their power. And so I like to, you know, I, I'm, I'm, what I'm most proud of is combining the two in a, in a balance. I think that works. Um, but, you know, yeah, the, the pigeons, you know, the, the, but also photography, if you're, if your goal is to take photos, I think it's easier to find, the beauty because you're looking for beauty right and you'll find beauty in places you know again the pigeon keepers which i don't think a lot of people see, you know pigeons in nicer neighborhoods pigeons are literally considered you know rats with wings um and i remember this old pigeon keeper telling me in park slope he's alaska you can't keep pigeons in park slope anymore and if your listeners don't know park slope is a um a very it's a part of Brooklyn that's been very gentrified, I guess, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's a, it's a bit cartoonishly mocked as being very liberal, educated liberals. And, um, you know, and who have um, ironically pushed out the minorities who used to live there. And um, the, the, la the, the guy who used to be the last pigeon keeper was telling me, he said something like, you know, when white people move into your neighborhood, all they care about is dogs and cats and everything else is, you know, <laughs> he had to get rid of his, you can't keep chickens anymore in your backyards in Park Slope and you can't keep um, pig pigeons on their roof. So pigeons are kind of, you know, considered lowbrow, um, but they're, they're an art form. And the other one is, the one other thing I found in the Bronx that I took pictures of that I liked is the Schwinn bike clubs. Uh-huh. They, you know, Schwinn bikes are the things that I think, I don't know if in Canada you had it, but in, if you grew up in the 60s or 50s, you ordered from the Sears catalog, you know, the, the starter bike um, that you, you know, the one with the banana seat um, and the tassels and a lot of female I bikes. I remember. Um, you know, they probably, <laughs> they, they've been dismissed now by um, the wealthy and the educated who've moved on to like fixed wheel 10 speeds and things. But in the Bronx and in poorer neighborhoods, there's clubs devoted to Schwinn's and they fix them up and they turn them into these, either they restore them to traditional to, to tradition or they, you know, they pimp them out. And so you have these old, <laughs> these, these bike clubs of like 50 mostly Latino guys riding around the Bronx on these Schwinn's. <laughs> And, you know, again, it's just, it's improvisation. It's turning something that's been discarded by others into an art form. Um, and some of them are gorgeous. You know, they got, you know, 
especially proud of the guy, of the seventy year old masculine guy with tattoos who drives, who who who's very proud of his old girlish pink Schwinn for the sixties. He fixed yeah. up. <laughs> is it um, is it lonely for you this this path you've taken? Um, you know, I think on the road it can get to be. You know, like I said, I meet make friends at the McDonald's. Um, um, it's I actually like, you know, people ask me about the long driving. I mean, I've, you know, I think on I think the longest drive I did was fifteen hundred miles in one day, sort of thing. Um, but I like long distance driving. It's it's very relaxing. It's very you know. It's, some people have meditation. For me, it's mm -hmm. it's you know, a twelve hour drive is my meditation. So. But I'm thinking about, you know, the the stories, that you, the story you just shared and the excitement you have over at the Schwinn Bike Clubs and the the pigeons. And is that a story with your friends that, that they're interested in, that they resonate with? Um, or do you, you know, feel a little bit alone in, in your excitement and, and in your appreciation of these things where maybe they're, as you said in the last podcast, more interested in, you know, building a beautiful home or having a beautiful wedding or whatever it is, which is fine. It's just different. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's been hard. Um, I think <laughs> not everybody in my life shares my unique interest, but you know, that's where Twitter helps, right? Where, right. where, you know, I, I badmouth Twitter, but when I'm, you know, when I find these things, I can make a little, I can say it on Twitter and you'll find, you know, again, the great thing about social media is you say it and someone's like, Oh yeah, my granddad does that, you know, and you know, someone from like, you know, <laughs> El Paso, like, yeah, when you're in El Paso, come through, we'll show you our Schwinn bike club. So you, you start finding that there are people out there who appreciate it and you learn a lot from it. Like, you know, I learned a lot about the, the pigeon keepers on Twitter and, and mm -hmm. on Flickr where people gave me feedback and saying, Hey, you know, my grand, you know, my grandfather, this was brought over by the Germans in 1920 um, who, who did it. And, you know, and you'll find the following guy who's still in Ridgewood, Queens is the last guy to do it last German guy you know, a lot of things like that so it's in that sense you find a community of people who are into it um but you know I mean <laughs> you 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 know it, it's it's hard to get people sometimes interested in what I'm interested in you know and I can I can hear you know you know I've sort of talked about the criticism and some of the assholes on Twitter and people who don't get it and I I assume as you just said it's it's brought you a lot of connection um with people uh and and because this book your book and your work is largely from you can tell me if i'm wrong been well received and it's had an impact you've had an impact it, it was it, it's been i think we i don't know if we spoke about this last time it's been well received much more from the right wing than from the left wing which surprised me right um so yeah i mean you know um it, it has been overall positive um um, and you know, I, I don't, even if it had been negative, I would have still done it, you know, because, um, I, you know, I'm kind of at a very selfish level, as I said before, I'm doing it for myself. Where do you see the state of the issue right now? Like, I mean, and, and is there a political solution to the, to the, what's going on in the United States around poverty and the addiction and the frustration, the humiliation, the shame, the disaffected groups of people is there a political solution and if so what what do you think it is i don't know i mean bad policy got us into this mess right um i'm not sure 
bad. I'm not sure you can unwind it, unfortunately. Um, you know, I think there are certain policy decisions I certainly would like to change. Um, you know, I'd like to see us rewind a little bit in how we treat, um, you know, how we over it. There's been a big policy shift that has basically put profits over workers at every level. Yeah. Um, and I think there's ones that the left sees and the ones that the right sees, but neither agrees. I mean, you know, I think the, the ones that I think people will fail to acknowledge, I think a lot of the left sees the obvious ones, um, you know, the um, breakup of unions, um, the removal of, um, or the means testing of a lot of social security, a lot of the safety net, mm -hmm. um, putting the market in places where the market shouldn't be. Um, but I think they also miss some of the more obvious ones with the bigger ones, which is um, uh, the, uh, overemphasis on globalism in terms of trade. Yeah. Um, the kind of um, way we've, as I said before, we've entered the market in absolutely everything. So, you know, the center left generally, the Obama types, the Clinton types, were as responsible as Republicans as putting the market in place into everything. Um, not denationalizing everything, deregulating everything and kind of making it, um, you know, this, this kind of system where we're all having a resume arms race. Um, how we get to a place where we're, we're not having a resume arms race, where right. we value more than just education and we value more than just money. I don't know how you get there. Um, I know the policies that we could move back to valuing labor in place over, over, um, profits. There's a lot of policies that will get, I don't know if it's going to get us all the way there because, you know, how do you get people to just feel, there's just some places where the government can't, the, this, I don't believe, I'm not a big government believer. I don't believe the big, the government, I'm libertarian in that sense that I think that we need less regulation. Um, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, classic example of bad government and bad bad regulation is putting the sand and sand in the pool man <laughs> skate park you know that's just i'm for less interferences in people's lives um but how do we get back to a place where culture you know society values um things like place and faith as much as they value money and i don't think you I don't think that's anything that comes, that has a, that's a bottom up thing. That's not a top, you can't impose that. Um, and so if I have a political home these days, cause I don't really, I, I certainly don't feel that much as welcome on the left as I used to. And I don't feel as, I certainly don't feel welcome on the right in many ways. Um, it's kind of localism. It's kind of this idea that, you know, that, that one of the things I wish I had put in my book is kind of the success, what I see as the people I met who were living, who were living fulfilled lives, who were really out there, kind of the people I kind of admired most who seemed the happiest and do in doing the quote best good were people like teachers at uh, teachers at the El Paso Community College, people who were doing lo local good. They weren't on Twitter bragging about 
helping 25 students, you know, from lower income neighborhoods find, you know, find a job um, or negotiate their, their, you know, their parents' um, divorce or whatever, you know, because if you're a teacher at a community college, you're also a social worker. Um, or the local minister, you know, in Selma who was built, a, took an old, you know, bookstore and turned it into a church. You know, those people who were just, just living their lives and doing good in their community and not, not bragging about it. Yeah. Um, they were doing it because it was the right choice. And um, if somehow you can have a wellspring of that, <laughs> of local communism that empowers people in their community without also being braggy about it for, you know, for show. I mean, you do it for the right reasons because it's the right thing to do, not, not because you want attention. And I think we have this kind of culture, you know, that wants quick fixes. So, you know, you want to solve poverty like that. You want to solve poverty by putting, you know, um, one of the, I think just a lot of the Ted talks, you know, we're going to solve poverty by putting, um, farms on built on, on rooftops you know like that's a that's a nice idea i'm all for putting farms on rooftops but it's not going to solve poverty you, you know and i don't you, we got to do a lot of these things in aggregate um and 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 not expect anyone to to just you know be the be the magic solution mm -hmm.